Namaste, and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, the host of the Modern Mystic Podcast, and today's episode I am re-releasing as it was one of my first interviews, and it is so formidable, with Sally Kempton, known around the world as Swami Durgananda. Sally passed and left her body yesterday, and her episode is so powerful And we have so many more listeners that I wanted to share her words and teachings with folks from around the globe to benefit. Sally is an intellectual powerhouse. She lived an incredible dynamic life. She grew up in New York. She was a young feminist author and journalist, and she traveled in the circles of Yoko Ono and Andy Warhol and eventually decided to leave that life and become a Swami in the Indian monk order called the Saraswati order and was a teaching monk for over 20 years. She eventually disrobed or gave up officially her Swamihood but continued to teach and was an expert in Tantra, yoga, philosophy, mindfulness, meditation, and really all the things to do with the interior world. So check out this episode. She was one of the greatest teachers I've ever had the good fortune to meet and a great human being and May she greatly rest in peace. Thank you, Sally, for your work, your wisdom, your wit, and enjoy this deep dive of inspiration with Sally Kempton, Swami Durgananda. Today, I am ebullient and overjoyed to have with us Sally Kempton, teacher, writer, and meditation powerhouse. Sally is an American spiritual teacher and writer, and she's a master of meditation, yoga philosophy, and practical tantric philosophy. I met Sally when she was a monk for 20 years, where she intensively studied the texts of Vedanta, yoga, and the North Indian tantric tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. Her current work interprets the wisdom of the tantras for mature contemporary aspirants, drawing on depth psychology and neuroscience. She teaches meditation as a process of inner exploration in which the practitioner learns to integrate heart, mind, and body in order to experience our natural state of wisdom and love. Sally is also the author of the exceedingly popular books, Meditation for the Love of It and Awakening Shakti, which are all must-reads for any serious meditators. Welcome, Sally, to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Thank you, Kilkenny. It's really a pleasure to be here. 
Well, it's such an honor to have you. And yeah. I just want to dive in because I have so many things I'd love to hear your brilliance on. So the first question I asked all my guests, Sally, is what does it mean to be a modern mystic to you? Ah, great question. Well, I believe uh, that the definition of mysticism is the understanding and experience of what is unseen and yet profoundly influential and creative in our, you know, our physical lives. So for me, being a modern mystic has been really giving my life to exploring the invisible while at the same time doing my best to have a, you know, a very normal human life, uh, take care of the body, not, not use mysticism as a way of ignoring the body, uh, you know, maintaining a, a level of political and social engagement while at the same time really deeply understanding and experiencing on a daily basis that what is behind all this is much more powerful than what we see. Mm, so profound. And I love that. And thank you because that that's, you know, and obviously you're speaking to that question, why I name this podcast modern mystic, because yeah. it's that, that tradition of what is it to be modern? And like you're saying, to be engaged still, to still be paying attention to that which is visible and um, as well as holding space. And as you said, and as I've seen, you've dedicated your life to the invisible and the, the simultaneity of, of both. So beautiful um, answer. And I, I love the word mystic so much which is connected to the Greek word mystikos and the Latin mystes, meaning one who has been initiated. And so I'd love Mm, to launch our conversation today. Yeah, from your incredibly unique perspective, as you were literally initiated as a monk, as a white Western female monk into an Indian yogic order within a, a spiritual community. So you have had a very formal initiation, quote unquote, in the the more traditional spiritual sense. And I'm curious what this word initiation means to you. What, as you had mentioned in your answer last question, your experience of it has been from this incredibly unique perspective. And then also for those listening who haven't had such a dramatic experience in relationship necessarily with that word initiation, you know, suggestions for how to incorporate and activate initiation more into our moment-to-moment day-to-day lives? Yeah, that, that's a beautiful question. I would say initiation has many different meanings and has had in my life as well, because what I consider, you know, well, so, okay, so let, let, let's go back to the start. Um, initiation literally means beginning, Right, so it's an initiation is a formal and often informal beginning of a change in uh, in the way you experience the world, and it can be very dramatic. For instance, my early initiation was was a Kundalini activation, which um, 
happened in the presence of a teacher who didn't become my ultimate teacher, but it it was it literally changed my perspective in a totally radical way because it you know that encounter awakened my kundalini energy and as as i think you know kilkenny when kundalini is awake your perspective shifts dramatically both you know in the sense that your inner world you know the interior world literally opens and uh, and you stop seeing everything as simply material, simply uh, hard, you know, confrontive. Uh, it changes, the, or at least in my case, it changed the way I related to people around me. And it also brought up an enormous amount of, of um, schmutz from inside, because part of what Kundalini does is begin a process of physical and psychic purification that it can be very dramatic. So the sannyasa initiation, and, and I, one other thing I would say is that this initiation, the awakening of Kundalini, is actually available to all of us, given our level of development. And that is that, that type of awakening, you know, where what we could call the invisible comes forward in your life and starts to change your life is available to everybody. You know, and, and something that all of us can, can really not just aspire to, but work towards. And very much of spiritual practice is about that, you know, including mantra repetition, certain aspects of hatha yoga, and contact with a teacher who has that capability. So, so that's the that's what I consider the the big initiation, the life changing initiation, the initiation into sannyas, which is the Sanskrit word that means uh, one who has renounced all worldly ties, uh, was happened about eight years, nine years later, and it was a classic formal initiation, which you know involved. What you do in a sannyas initiation is is you you literally perform your own funeral rites because classically it it's the it's the end of your worldly life. Um, my guru was giving initiation to Westerners, and in a certain way, the motivation behind it, the initiation as he gave it, and as I believe is practiced uh, in in a modern context, um, increasingly, that his purpose in creating the initiation was, I would say, really to bind us to discipleship and to God. So, uh, it, the process of, of you know performing your funeral rites, going into the river, and literally renounce it's. There's a whole ceremony that you do where you renounce the pleasures of the three worlds, as the Indian texts say. Uh, and it's very, very transformative. At, you know, the, I don't believe I realized how transformative it was uh, until you know, 20 years later, I made the decision to renounce my Swami robes simply because I wanted to be able to work with people 
not as someone set apart, but as someone who is part of their lives, who is facing the same issues that we all face in this world. Um, and I discovered that I did a kind of a formal um, offering back of my robes in the temple and the ashram where I was living. And I realized in that moment that the initiation was not going to leave me just because I'd given up the robes. And that was a profoundly transformative experience because that was what made me realize that this, this initiation was, you know, that just like the initiation of Kundalini 20 years earlier, the, uh, 30 years earlier, actually, the initiation into sannyas was a permanent shift of state. And I believe that this is what initiation is. It just changes you. So, and, you know, one of the secrets of spiritual life, as you know, is that initiation is necessary. In other words, in, all, in every tradition, you know, in, for instance, the Christians talk about being born again. What they're experiencing is an initiation, and the initiation comes from an invisible energy vortex, uh, you know, from, from a, a being and a, an energetic field that is not obviously present in the physical world, whereas my initiation was accompanied by, you know, it was done in a group and it involved other human beings and fire and water, etc. spoken words. But, you know, that this understanding that in spiritual initiation means the end of one life and the beginning of another, I believe is found in every tradition because it's, it's true. You know, there's there's an awakening that comes to us through different means that literally initiates a new phase of life. Mm. Oh, so much richness to your story and, and all that you said. And a couple of things I just want to clarify for the people listening is that um, the Kundalini Shakti energy um, if you want to just speak and give a little sentence about that, my understanding is that latent, dormant spiritual energy within ourselves that is said in many yogic traditions is asleep, so to speak, lifetime after lifetime. And then if one is fortunate enough and has done enough of that inner work, then it becomes awakened, um, often through a teacher, but not always through different experiences. And it's that awakening that sets us and sort of turns us on our path back towards seeking connection with the divine, that back towards our own conscious development and spiritual maturation. That's my understanding, but I'm sure you have uh, many things you could add to that. I know that you expressed it beautifully. I, I, I think the thing about Kundalini that um, that not everybody understands is that there are many, many levels of Kundalini awakening from the very mild, you know, where you start to experience a shift in your priorities. And I do believe that, that many, many people in the contemporary spiritual world and in the yoga world have experienced that, you know, that mild awakening, which as you practice and as you come in contact with people who actually have an, you know, a fully awake kundalini, 
can become a, you know, a full-on physical and spiritual experience. Uh, but I, I do believe that one of the really signal signs of you know, the evolutionary process that we're in, which hopefully will outrun climate change, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and everything else that's going on that's, that seems to be devolutionary, but I, I have found and I, you know, and experienced the fact that there is a kind of a widespread evolutionary transformation going on, uh, you know, in the Western world, which is what I know, as, you know, as well as in traditional Eastern cultures like India, and that it's much more widespread, I think partly because of the yoga, you know, the the great expansion of the Hatha yoga tradition into every, you know, pretty much every corner of the world. Because Hatha yoga, especially if you're a strong practitioner and have a strong teacher, Hatha yoga, one of the purposes of Hatha yoga is to change your relationship to this inner energy, this, this dormant energy. And uh, so many, many people are having this kind of awakening either in mild form, sometimes in dramatic form, who often don't really understand what has happened. You know, so part of, the, part of what I have found very important in my own work is, you know, is to A, be a resource for people who are having an awakening, and B, to help people understand what it is and how to work with it and what an extraordinary privilege it is, you know, to have this, this, you know, inner force come awake and begin to transform you. Mm, well, it's so interesting what you're saying because it really is so true. I mean, way back even before I met you, I was five years old doing, you know, Hatha Yoga meditation in my mom's friend's basement. And uh, there weren't yoga, yoga studios on every block or even nearby. You know, we would travel four hours to, to go to ashrams and places and temples like that. And as you're speaking to now, of course, there has been this, you know, amazing um, burst of this in so many corners of the world and this evolution of consciousness that we're seeing. And it's fascinating to, to really think about the Kundalini Shakti awakening because it, it used to be, and you are an incredible powerhouse, you know, uh, intellectual and master student of all this. So you can tell us, but my understanding is for really a myriad of centuries, these practices were shrouded in mystery and you would have to have, you know, an official guru, a teacher, um, you know, even in the, the, the monk traditions of Buddhism, I've heard, you know, how the, the story of the student would have to go outside and, you know, wait in the rain and the snow and the sleet, like for seven years or, or you know, a certain, prescriptive number of years before they would even, you know, get a few teachings or a practice. And so now what we're facing as a culture, which is such a blessing and a gift, having so many more people exposed to these practices that are so powerful, that have the potential to awaken our spiritual energy, but then it becomes, okay, but then who's managing it and supporting the management and the the journey of it, which is the the, the function of, of a teacher and a quote-unquote guru as such. Uh, yes, exactly. And, you know, as when there's any kind of dramatic shift, which, you know, I think we're all pretty aware is happening on 
multiple levels right now, the management issue becomes a big deal because people don't have experience of it. And the thing I've noticed over the last 30 years or so since Kundalini became a topic that many, many people in the West are familiar with, which, you know, it certainly wasn't when I started and maybe even when you started, uh, that part of what's happened is that people begin to have spontaneous awakenings without being in a context where it can be explained. So a lot of mythology has grown up around Kundalini. A lot of it because when people don't understand what Kundalini is and don't recognize that, that, that this energy, which I'm going to call she, because in my tradition, Kundalini is seen as a form of the divine feminine. So in relating to your own inner energy as a form of goddess energy, actually allows you to recognize the divinity in your own body. You know, the fact that, you're, that, that the energy that powers your life is not personal. It's not even biological. It's spirit energy, you know, and that we have that spirit energy in every cell unknown to us until this particular aspect of the life force awakens. And if people understand that, that, that they have come into a process through, you know, I agree, amazing good fortune and probably lifetimes of inner work, uh, if people don't realize that this is the turning point that's going to connect them to the planet, to each other, to, you know, the higher realms, and, you know, just imagine that suddenly they have a lot of energy moving through their system that they don't understand, People get frightened, they get confused, they think they should shut it down. Uh, and that for this reason, I really believe that education about Kundalini is crucially important because there are ways of working with the energy that allow it to unfold within you at the speed that is okay for you. You know, there are some people who, who really have the physical and mental stamina for dramatic energetic experience. Most of us don't. So to understand the energy, to understand that, that this energy awakens in you for profoundly benign purposes, that it's love energy, <clears throat> and that part of its work is to help you remove the, those aspects of your Psyche, of your psyche and your body that are standing in the way of a full experience of love. So, you know, Kundalini is really about removing all the blocks to understanding that this universe is made of love. Mm, so beautifully put. And therefore, and therein lie the practices. I mean, I, I have so many aspects of things you've touched on that I want to dive into but this seems like a natural gateway into thus the practices. Like our listeners might be thinking, okay, well, how do I work with this energy? Or what are concrete ways I can interface with energy? Or as I mentioned in my question earlier, like in the day-to-day -day moments of life, how do I integrate initiation? And, and the practices in my mind, in my experience at least, are 
a, a means to do so, the practices of meditation, pranayama, breath work, and, and of course the asana, the yoga, and, and then the day-to-day interpersonal disciplines with others and within ourselves. And I'm wondering if you could start with your mastery of meditation. So how does meditation work with experiencing this kundalini shakti so one can essentially evolve and be more connected, as you mentioned, to this field of love within them? Why meditate? What is it? Uh, Yes. (laughs) And I also want to say that in terms of working with your own awakening, that mantra practice is also crucial. So, Mm. and, you know, as you know, traditionally, a student would go to a teacher and the teacher would give, give the student a mantra and the student would repeat the mantra and gradually the, the energy within the mantra would kind of permeate the, the subtle body and, awakening would occur and through the mantra and also the the energy in the mantra would help to regulate the awakening you know so because mantra at least um, at least most of the great mantras that teachers customarily give beginning students are their their gentle mantras their soothing mantras their mantras that are that are designed to awaken your parasympathetic nervous system so that, you know, you move out of tension and into a state of deeper and deeper inner relaxation. So, and of course, meditation does that as well. Uh, the, the thing about meditation that, you know, that sometimes confuses people or that, you know, people that, that people can't, you know, feel they can't quite get their arms around it. It's partly because, you know, we're so out of touch with the natural world. We're so out of touch with our own biorhythms as a civilization. And our minds are so busy and so overstimulated. And I'm not going to say more about that because we all know it. Mm-hmm. So, so sitting for meditation initially is often, often feels quite difficult because, you know, you're, you're following the breath, you're doing a visualization, you're repeating your mantra, but thoughts and distractions continually arise. And for many people, this is discouraging. They feel like they're not good at it, they haven't mastered it. So in my own case, uh, I had some very beautiful and alluring experiences of meditation in the months after my initial, my initiations. Um, And after I met my teacher, a lot of the process of meditation for me was activated by, by mantra practice. So, because his, his, his method of meditation was really, it was very simple. You know, he would give you a mantra, you would sit coordinating the mantra with the breath or not. And, just allow the process to take place and your job would be to just keep bringing your mind back to the mantra you know in the in the 435 times that it leaves the mantra in the course of an hour meditation mm-hmm. so uh there's you know as we know as meditation becomes more popular 
people begin to realize that you know, meditation is it's kind of an all-purpose practice. In other words, it's a it's a terrific stress reduction practice, as you know, that just sitting and focusing on the breath, letting the breath deepen, um, maybe counting breaths, but even counting breath is not that important. It, but what is important is to join your awareness to the breath and let it come deeper and deeper into your body or let it come deeper and deeper into the heart center. So in that sense, meditation is, can be, should be a way of coming into your body with the recognition that you are not your body. And this seems somewhat paradoxical, but, you know, most of us are profoundly out of our bodies, even if we do physical practice, because we're directing it always from the mind. But, uh, you know, once meditation has taken root in you, then what you discover is that you, you actually can bring your awareness into your body, into the spiritual centers, into the muscles, and literally transform the way that your body is being experienced. So meditation is an extremely helpful uh, health measure on that level. Uh, and, you know, it's also a way to, uh, to, to get questions answered. I, my practice for years has been when there's something I have to figure out or when I'm uh, writing something or an article or a talk, uh, I will often just start the process every day that I'm working by sitting in meditation, asking the question that I want answered. And after 20 minutes or half an hour of meditation, I will come out, the question will have been answered. You know, because the, and the answer will have come from a deeper, truer place than I could have figured out with my mind. So in that sense, meditation is an extraordinarily helpful practice and platform for mining your own wisdom and mm. you know, and uh, indispensable I think for that reason you know mm. uh, and of course as your meditation deepens you begin to more and more have the experience of yourself as immortal spirit for want of a better word you know it's I don't know if there is a better word you know but <laughs> you, you know you start to recognize that your own consciousness your own awareness is independent of your physical experience, that it can take in, hold, and be be a witness participant in the physical world, while itself remaining untouched. So, and this is a process that, you know, I would say is the heart of mystical experience. It's just the recognition of of the of spirit as your as your own nature. And what was the term you so beautifully coined? Did you say? Immortal spirit? Immortal spirit, yes. Yeah, immortal, because I want everyone to hear that. And just as you said, there are just such a myriad of benefits of meditation. And ultimately, as you punctuated your last comment with so eloquently, it's connected back to the mysticism. It's connected to being with the invisible parts of self and in that way becoming more threaded to the invisible, magical, and amazing parts of this universe, and also being anchored more fully into your body, yeah. which we spoke of with Modern Mystic, right? It's this amazing, as you put it, all-purpose tool that 
always astounds me how much more in my body I feel and yet then simultaneously connected to the the deepest place of my soul and my spirit. So thank you for explaining it as you did so beautifully. And would you extrapolate then on what your understanding and experiences of mindfulness because that's also become such a term yes and it's obviously connected to meditation and I'm curious you know what you make of it yourself I know myself I often think about mindfulness personally more of what I bring back to my life as the party favor after meditation (laughs) and integrate that's one way I think of it but I'm curious um, how you perceive this this notion of mindfulness. Is it different from meditation? Is it connected? What, what's your take on it? Well, I think it can be either. In other words, um, you know, in the Buddhist mindfulness, uh, in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, where it's all about mindfulness. You know, you you you, and Buddha actually explained that meditation is mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of thoughts. And it's, it's really a pr- the practice of bringing your attention fully into y- your breath, into your body, uh, into your, you know, the, the f- emotions that you're feeling so that y- you're actually training your attention to remain one pointed and, it's you know I, I think mindfulness is a fantastic as a as a meditation practice I think it's a fantastic practice I I also feel that it's extremely good for beginners um, and I'm not you know this is not to this is not to say that it, it's not a practice it's a practice that obviously can can uh, be done on a beginning level and on a very advanced level and on the advanced level mindfulness is really leads to the same place as, you know, more obviously mystical forms of meditation in that it teaches you to identify with awareness, you know, with that awareness, which can, which can be aware of the breath, which can be aware of thoughts, which can feel the movement of fear, for example, inside your body and investigate it. You know, one of the great terms in Buddhist mindfulness practice is, uh, is the idea of looking at your dysfunction with curiosity rather than with fear or repulsion. You know, so for instance, if you're feeling scared or if you're feeling angry and you just allow yourself to be present inside the fear, to feel how it feels in your body, to feel the sensations of anger, to notice what's going on in your mind, uh, then for, first of all, it's of course, if it's a very good way of managing emotions, which is I think one of the things you were implying, we bring it, we come out of meditation and we're suddenly able to be conscious in our interactions and in our self-care management. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a profound tool for every form of development. And one of the things I wanted that I didn't mention when, I was, when we were talking about modern mysticism is that one of the, the great, understandings that's come about in the last 50 years is the understanding of development you know that that actually human beings go on developing in adult life and that in the course of a lifetime you can you can actually change the structure 
of the way you think and view the world. And again, this is something that's available to everybody, you know, to, and I, you know, I think if you look at your life, you'll see that, that in the course of your adult life, you have developed at different stages. You know, you, maybe we, maybe we start out, um, feeling very separate from the world and almost scared of the world, or, you know, we graduate to realizing we can actually affect the world, um, you know, at a, at a certain point, we start to realize that everything is interconnected. You know, there's, there's just many, many levels of development that we come to that are psychological and human as well as spiritual. And meditation and mindfulness, both these practices, actually facilitate speedy development. So, you know, as you were saying, it... Um, Mindfulness is the party favor that you bring out of meditation. In a certain sense, mindfulness is what you develop in meditation as you are, you know, as you as you described. And then we can bring it into every part of our life. And that's when we, you know, that's how we develop as mature beings. Mm, thank you for for articulating that because that's exactly what I was implying, right? That's because I've had different people and students over the years, even family members, talk about, well, you're leaving the world <laughs> to meditate. You're going away, and it's about going to the center of the center of oneself to come back into the world and be more authentic and effective and um, skillful. Yeah. So, wow, what a beautiful and really um, helpful description. Thank you so, so much. And I'm just curious because with your incredibly unique perspective, and I'm thinking about going into meditation and going out of meditation, you, as you described earlier, you know, we're in an ashram setting and then leaving the ashram setting and that really heartfelt and, and um, incredible understanding of, oh, wait, I'm actually not really leaving my initiation. You're bringing that now out to the world in a different way. And I'm thinking of the parallel between that and, and how you spoke of meditation. And I'm just wondering, when you were initiated as a monk and then when you left, was there any kind of almost culture shock? Like when you have lived in a country, for those listeners who have for a little while, or even when I moved down south and then moved back after four years to the north, I, I had, you know, an experience of a little bit of a jolt. I'm wondering on either end, how was that for you, those transitions? Because when we talk about going into ashram life, just so our listeners understand, as Sally mentioned, you know, she did her funeral rites and one commits to wearing, you know, only saffron orange-esque robes and one, you know, is abstinent from sex and one is devoted purely to, to, to teaching, essentially, yogic practices. So could you speak a little bit about that and what that was like and if you had a sense of any kind of culture shock or if that was just seamless both ways in and out? No, no, it certainly wasn't seamless. But I, I, one thing I would say is that the ashram that I lived in was, uh, it was not that cloistered. In other words, there are always a lot of people there. We did a lot of programs. There was a, there was almost seamless integration of um, students who who were not in the, who did not live in the ashram, you know, who, who would come for brief visits, and the people who did live there. So 
it wasn't like I went from you know a you know from a cloistered monastery into Times Square, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, it was a big culture shock, and I had to uh, relearn a lot of things because I was in the ashram for thirty years, uh, and also you know the the world had the world changed radically between nineteen seventy four when I got involved with with that with the spiritual path. And uh, 2002, when I left the ashram, um, you know, politics had changed. Uh, the, you know, the whole tech revolution had occurred. Values had uh, often seemed very different um, in positive ways, by the way, as well as negative ways. So I actually had to adjust to a new world and, you know, including the political, let's say the political and cultural understanding that I, uh, that had been part of my youth and that I, that I took into the ashram, I realized that that particular cultural understanding was no longer the predominant cultural understanding in the circles and, I moved in. And, and that, may, I, may yeah. I ask you, I don't mean to interrupt you, so please hold yeah. that thought, but just um, thinking about what I've read about your your young adulthood. Right. And I just want to contextualize that because it's it's pretty extraordinary. My understanding is that you were a flourishing young journalist in New York covering popular culture, arts, feminist issues. So this is in what, the late 60s, early 70s for Esquire, New York Times, Village Voice, in circles of Andy Warhol, Yoko Ono with the incredibly promising book career, right? So this is just to give the audience a sense of where you were in the outer world. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was part of the downtown culture of the late 60s and early 70s, not so much as, you know, I, because I wasn't an artist, I was a journalist, but uh, that was my context, that was my world. And, you know, it was, I mean, and this, this was the time of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, you know, the culture that I lived in was, uh, was a, essentially a left-wing, um, you know, kind of culturally adventurous, um, culturally revolutionary attitude towards the world. And then I think what happened was the Reagan administration <laughs> just changed just changed the whole face of it. Um, so, you know, and there certainly is a a deep countercultural scene now, uh, and you know we are, as I think a lot of people have noticed, you know we're moving after twenty five or thirty years of essentially political apathy on the part of young people. We're we're you know, clearly now in a period where there's enormous um, sense of the necessity of political activism. But when I came out of the ashram, there was none of that. So the conversation was different. You know, it was everyone was much more about uh, how you personally make your life better, you know, how you make a lot of money, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which had never been issues for me or my generation. And mm. you know, one of the things that I, I realized is that my generation, you know, I was born at the end of World War II. My generation was, the, I think, the most privileged group of young people on, who ever lived on this planet. You know, 
It was, mm-hmm. it was this, I was a pre-boomer, a couple of years pre-boomer. It was a small group of, uh, of you know, people born in my cohort. It meant it was easy to get into college. College was cheap. I went to the, one of the most expensive colleges in the, this country. And Where'd you go? Sarah Lawrence. Oh, and uh, nice. the, the tuition was as expensive as Harvard. It was $4,000 a year. So if you can imagine. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, and then we came into a world where, you know, it was very easy uh, to get a job, you know, to pursue a career. And where we also felt like it wasn't, it wasn't so necessary to have money. Um, and it became apparent in the late 70s, 80s, et cetera, that uh, the world wasn't like that anymore. You know, there are more people, everything was more expensive. Um, it was harder to, you know, to get ahead in the world and people just became more desperate and concerned with material issues than we had to be. You know, we didn't have to mm. be because there was so much opportunity that was just literally, I think we just took it for granted. So. So that's such an interesting perspective because when thinking about your choice to become a monk, that's a fascinating thought of the the group of peers you were in and how you felt yeah. about materialism and things like that. Because I know like for myself, my daughter, she's um, 12 and she asked me last week, when you were my age, it was going to seventh grade, you know, what did you want to do for your career? And I thought about it and I, and, and this is the truth. So it's ironic we're speaking today. I said, I wanted to be a monk. I had like ah. a good, like two, two year period where I was like voraciously reading texts and I would go up to ashrams and spiritual places. And I was just like voracious, um, me thinking about that. And she kind of looked at me funny right. and she was like, of course you did. Uh, knowing you, like, right, and then she's hilarious. like, "Well, you you, you kind of you kind of do that now, Mom." She was like, "And and you know, because there there weren't ways to share teachings and practices, and and there." I said to her, "Well, I guess there really was a seed of that. There was an inkling that I had never really thought about that I really you know fulfilled my own destiny my own way, and there was like a a murmuring in my heart for that. But that was during a time where." Also, it was before you came came out of the ashram formally as a monk, but it was a, you know, what was going on? It wasn't like everything was easy and things were very to the left and there wasn't all this artistic stuff going around. And I think even today it's interesting because I think a, a lot of spiritual people, particularly who are on the younger end, you know, might glamorize and glorify and think, oh, I just want to go away somewhere now. Because those things that you're speaking of, you know, we hear even now with the millennial generation, how they're set up to not be able to afford colleges and how more than ever, it's even more exacerbated those important things that you said came after your generation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I mean, the, the life for millennials and younger and older, of course, is very precarious now in a way that it didn't used to be. So in a way, um, I think that, that the, you know, the intensity of the situation that, that we're in now, it can accelerate your spiritual life because you start to realize that you have to have a place of wisdom and refuge if you're going to get through this you know, life at this time. So, you know, t- 
hard times can be very, very spiritually helpful. Uh, but I think for, mo- for many people, the struggle of, you know, just getting by, making a living, paying your bills, raising your children is a lot, you know, and, um, and it's, you know, it seems to be harder and harder. So in a certain way, people don't have time uh, to, to deeply question in the way that, that one must do to have a, you know, to have a genuinely transformative spiritual life. You have to be able to take some time to question your assumptions. And I do believe that a lot of the millennials and the Gen Z people uh, are doing exactly that. And what they're, what they're questioning is our social arrangements, you know, our political situation, um, the inequities, the, you know, the radical inequalities in our society. Uh, and th- that's something that is tremendously important and needs to be done. And I, my hope is my, uh, let's say, a part of the work I feel that people like you and I do is to to help people understand that having a deep inner life is going to make the work that you do to transform the world uh, much more doable. You know, and I I just, I think it's tremendously important for political activists to have a, have a strong practice because otherwise, you know, you, you get caught up in whatever is the, the cause du jour or whatever is going on on your Twitter feed and you're you're compl- always completely focused on the outside, and therefore powerless, you know, because the out- outside world is too big for most people to be able to affect in a meaningful way. But once you've gone inside and started to find the wisdom and power that you have, that you really have, then every action you take can come from that place, and it just can be, as you said earlier, much more effective. Yeah, so important. And you said so many things that I think our listeners can can really relate to just your sense of, as you spoke of, you know, bills and the busyness and the fullness and our schedules more than ever. Yeah. Um, and this being more and more a norm to, to work more to, 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 you know, be pulled out by all those centrifugal forces. And so that's the beauty of this expanded collective spiritual, you know, hopefully elevated consciousness movement, right, of, of trying to resist that. And as you're saying, take, you know, pockets of peace and practices to refuel from the inside. So yeah. that when we do our work in the world, and that's in my mind what a, what a modern mystic is, going back out to the world, as you spoke of so eloquently earlier and, and doing that work and showing up with that work and, and having it be as potent as possible. Yeah. I, I'm curious if you could speak, because this is a question I've gotten for decades, the difference between spirituality and religion and your mind. Because uh. this is something I remember as a child when I met you, not people would ask me and I didn't really know what to say. And then I, over time I've contemplated it. And I think a lot of our, our listeners would say, you know, what it, what is the difference in Sally's mind? We'd love to hear. Spirituality is about direct experience. You know, that, that spirituality comes, it begins to be born when, 
when you either start asking yourself, there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing and start looking, you know, looking for answers, uh, which will eventually lead you to recognizing that it's your own mind and your own inner state that's really determining your experience and to start to connect yourself to, you know, what in AA they call the higher power or spirit or God, uh, doesn't really, or goddess, um, which is what many of my students call the higher power, uh, that it's, it's an individual journey in which you have companions and teachers, hopefully, because those are very important, but it's essentially based on experience and it honors personal experience. Whereas religion, uh, and, you know, which I think is an can be an enormously positive and helpful force in life, and also, of course, destructive, is almost always about accepting a set of first of principles that you're required to believe in, accepting a hierarchy, accepting intermediaries between yourself and spirit. Uh, you know, it's it's very much you know, religions create tribes, right? You know, they're they're they have a deep um, kind of resonance with uh, with people's culture and family life. And it's almost like religious institutions are part of the social fabric, you know, as, you know, as governments are, as, um, as banks are, it's a realm of life, you know, that's, that you can pursue without ever really turning inside. Hmm. Uh, whereas spirituality, it's all about turning inside. Mm. And so you hit the nail on the head, like just about one's own experience, not like yeah. you have to believe this, Yeah. but really you're invited to do a set of practices and then see the results for yourself. Exactly. And you learn you. to, to follow your intuition, um, in a way that's meaningful and not just, you know, diluted. I mean, we often think, we often think, you know, we're having a gut feeling or a gut intuition and it turns out that it's just the mind, but spirituality actually awakens our intuition so that we begin to know what, what the next right thing is. Uh, you know, to, we, we, we begin to be able to be guided and led uh, by something that we trust that's not our own mind. Mm. Mm, so, so good. That intuition, that's such a part of, of the mystic path and such a part of as you said earlier, a lot of us are cut off from because we're not connected to our bodies. Yeah. So as you stated, that's why I agree with you. Those Buddhist practices of mindfulness are so great because they, they can, for entry-level meditators, they, they bring us back to our bodies, connect us to our minds, and then lead us to our intuitions. And that, yeah. that intuitive um, inner GPS, I like to call it, Mm. It's such a benefit of the practices and meditation. And I want to offer you deep gratitude for your illuminating wisdom on how meditation not only helps one process stress, mitigate anxiety, and improve all bodily functions, but how, as you put it so eloquently, it literally threads the body and mind together and leads us to the destination of our intuitions in the hub of the heart. Yeah. If you could speak on the term Tantra, because you had mentioned emotions in that Buddhist setting, and 
in the yogic setting, the way I learned to work directly with feelings was through the rasas and the, the study of emotions in the umbrella philosophy of tantra and it's just become so popular can you believe it i know it's amazing isn't it 10 years yeah it used to be when i was a kid i wouldn't say it because it, there used to be such a strong connotation of tantra with sex and i'm curious if you could speak about that what is tantra what are some modern applications of it today and what do you attribute this resurgent surge of interest and and then of course is it always connected to sex or not? Which we know the answer already, but oh. I'd love to hear you speak of it. <laughs> well, I, well, as you know, Kilkenny, there's there are many there are different there are different expressions of tantra. Um, you know, for instance, the word tantra actually refers to a, a group of texts that focused on uh, mantras, on visualizations, um, often for the sake of increasing your your personal power you know, not even necessarily devoted to the divine, except in the sense that the tantrikas would would recognize that through certain practices, certain mantras, you could connect to a power that you could then harness and use. And that, I would say, is the, let's call it the, um, the popular uh, application of tantra for, for many generations in India. Uh, many people that I, many Indians I know who are, you know, traditional, uh, you know, who have relationships with the temple, for example, will have a, a, a practitioner or, you know, a, a tantra, they, you know, they're called tantrikas, somebody who they go to when they're having physical problems or when somebody's being mean to them, you know, or when they need a when they need some energy behind their career, they'll go to a tantrika and the tantrika will kind of intervene. So, you know, in a way that level of tantra is like kind of like magic. It, so, so there's that level of tantra and, uh, and then there's also the kind of underground um, sexualized aspect of tantra. But, in general, in, in truly tantric circles, uh, and certainly in modern tantra in the West, I would say two things. First, uh, I, and I, I think you as well, practice what's sometimes called non-dual tantra. So it's, it's based on the understanding that this, that this universe is one substance, and you know that everything is part of the divine weaving, one of the translations of of the word tantra is weaving and that anything in this universe you know f and especially your own body can be can be a vehicle for touching the divine so a lot of the the beauty of tantra for a modern person is that it let it is that it valorizes embodiment it sees the world as sacred um and it and it's full of techniques for, you know, for actually uh, using your ordinary daily experience as a as a vehicle for entering, you know, in entering into higher realms, higher states. And it's I think the thing that many modern people, yoga practitioners especially, love about tantra is that is that it is sensual. 
you know, it recognizes the sensuality of the body as, uh, as not, as not sensual for its own sake, but sensual as an aspect of the bliss of the divine, you know. So Tantra very much focuses on learning how to experience the, the innate blissfulness, even in unpleasant experiences. And yes, sex, you know, sec, there is a sexual Tantra, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, in which you, you know, you enter in, during during a sexual act or during sexual arousal, you enter into the the felt experience of the deepest form of sexual energy that that you can uh, that you can get in contact with, and you work with the energy rather than with the uh, the the arousal itself and the connection with the other person. So, you know, sexual energy is uh, it's one of the the main energetic fields that a that a normal person can access, which is transcendent in its own way. So you know there. So there. Yes, there are sexual practices in tantra, but they're you know they're a, a tiny percentage of the this incredible uh, panoply of practices that the tantric traditions give you. So. And my favorite of all the tantric practices and the ones, <clears throat> the one that I have found most helpful is the practice of tuning into the energy of an emotion, especially a strong emotion like, like fear, like anger, like lust, and it's kind of zeroing into the energy behind the emotion. So, and you know, when you can do that, and this is one of the things that the tantras excel at, when you can do that, you start to realize that behind positive experience, negative experience, and especially intense experience, uh, there's a doorway into the infinite. So, so that's you know that to me is the heart of tantra: finding doorways to the infinite in the body, uh, and in you know in ev really every aspect of life. Mm, I love your description. It's just so, so exciting. And I think people will really, really resonate because it really is about, and, and you know, I think so much of, of the path of Tantra, and there, there are many paths, but as a, as a mystical path, because of what you said about how every aspect of life can be used as a as a doorway and a threshold in which to walk towards experiencing the infinite and the universe and the divine and you know whether it's feeding your kids whether it's you know doing your dishes it's you know moving into the experience more towards the present moment experience and as we move towards those experiences often the sensing of the invisible happens more. Yes, it definitely does. It definitely does. I mean, one of the great insights that people like Eckhart Tolle and you know other non-dual teachers offer is is that when you're really poised in the present moment, that you're you know there's there's no problem. <laughs> you know, there's the capacity for delight. Uh, you know that just the just the space between one breath and another, the space where you're you're bringing yourself just fully into your body or your heart or, you know, or the embrace of, 
your child or your beloved uh, or a tree, you know, that in that, in that moment, in, when you're in full present moment awareness of anything, you're, you know, you're, you're in touch with God. Mm. So, yeah, it reminds me of that Titnat Han, beautiful. I don't know if you've heard him speak or write of this about how he meditates on the tree, mm. and the tree becomes more beautiful than any kind of cathedral or anything because the sun is in the tree, and then the waters in the tree, and essentially, you know, he goes through a whole thing. Everything is in the tree when you're fully present, a hundred percent of you with the tree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the vision of the mystic. That's the, the vision of, of that experience. Totally. In, in the, in, you know, the, the, the infinite and the finite, as the Walden Pond poets wrote about, right? Yes, 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 yes. Well, it was so fascinating because when you were talking, and thank you for this, because I don't know how I haven't thought of this, I don't know, ever, but definitely not in the last decade or so, how with the sexual energy and energetic fields, so often in our Western experience, at least, we think of religion and spirituality as far away from sexual energy. Right. And it's so the tantric philosophy is so different because it holds it, as you said, as it holds emotions, as it holds anger, fear, and the full gamut of human experiences as almost equal, right? As almost at least an equal doorway as you described, in which to experience the divine. Yes. Is that true? That is true. I would say, you know, functionally, uh, obviously, states of joy and calm are, uh, are, are way more pleasant to experience than states of anger and fear. <laughs> you know, so, so I wouldn't say they are equal in our normal experience, even though mm -hmm. many of us live in states of anger and fear. But yes, they're equally um, accessible doorways to the divine right, and I, they're I, opportunities they're opportunities if we, if we if we view them and open to perceiving them in that way yeah yeah and you know the one of my early teachers used to talk about polarities dualities and sexuality and spirituality are one of those polarities uh you know that it's not as it's not as rigid as good evil but it, it, but you're right. They are. They have in most religious traditions, and in the world in general, um, considered to be opposite. And I won't go into the conversation about how religious leaders get get bamboozled by their own sexuality. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I the the thing about tantra also that it's important to recognize is that while the tantric viewpoint. Uh, is accessible to everybody, and I think really helpful. That actual the actual practice of tantra is is it's an advanced practice. In other words, it really is meant for people who have cooked their mind, right? You know, who have worked with their emotions, who are not completely, you know, they're not completely raw. So, it's tantra works best for for practitioners who really have have entered into their own practice uh, because, you know, it is, it is very easy if you're, if you're a naive beginning tantrika to go, oh, everything is God, so anything is okay, which is obviously not a, not a functional way to live in the world and doesn't make the world better. 
so, you know, we need to have a kind of an understanding and personal discipline in order to just open completely to, you know, to what Tantra can be. Mm, yeah, that's such an important point to say. And thank you for saying that because, right, when people go around, oh, it's all good, it's all good. It's like, yeah. no, that's not Tantra. It's not all good. Exactly. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> Actually, you're in denial and dissociation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which are, you know, staples of the spiritual community yeah. and path as well. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> And Sally has so many beautiful offerings where you actually offer specific tantric practices that people can work with their emotions. I've heard you teach, which is one of my favorite, finding that common denominal energy. I think of it as you, you just so beautifully teach that and how to move through that in a safe way. And so I wanted to ask you, because you do so much with these teachings in working with goddess energy. And I know you mentioned a lot of your, your students and clients, you know, call and refer to, to, to God as goddess. And if you would be willing to, to share a little bit more about how you use and work with Indian goddesses and the divine feminine to invite the, the many dimensions of Shakti more fully into your life and how we can do that into our lives to help us evolve transform and even create uh this is a big subject kilkenny <laughs> but i'll try to i'll try to say something about it in a minute or two i mean in in a short time so you know in the in the indian tradition and in the tantric tradition as you know the understanding is that the ultimate reality has two faces one of which is still is transcendent um is is what religions think of as God, uh, you know, as the formless divine. There's another face which is dynamic, which is creative, uh, which has the nature of overflowing creativity. And that's, you know, so these are called in, in my tradition, they're called Shiva for the still transcendent and Shakti for the, uh, you know, for the dynamic creative, which has become your body and the world. So you know, in the sense that in traditional religions we say that God creates the world, what we say is that in Tantra is that Shakti, the dynamic aspect of the Absolute, manifests the world within her own body. So, which is one of the, re one of the reasons that the Tantric practitioners and the Tantric sages understand the world as divine because we understand the world as Shakti. And in this process, and I have found this fascinating over the years, uh, in the process of manifesting universes, Shakti takes subtle forms, subtle divine forms, which, you know, which in most of the Eastern traditions, um, which are called deities. So they're, they're um, infinitely subtle and powerful beings who many people experience in a what I would call a humanoid form, you know, in the form of a of a beautiful woman or in the form of a of a um, well muscled yogi, which is you know how Shiva is often often depicted, and <clears throat> these forms are vortexes through which you can experience the the deeper uh, level of communion with that divine force. So. All of these forms, if, you, if you're with them deeply enough, will open up into an experience of what's behind everything. 
So we use the goddess forms as doorways, you know, not so much as idols or icons, but as, uh, you know, as meditational forms that can, in the process of meditating on them, change the way you see yourself because the essence of tantric deity practice is to internalize the divine, to make your own body divine. And one of the ways you do this is by imagining and creating a relationship with a divine form, which in Sanskrit is called the Ishta Devata or personal deity. And, you know, working with a mantra, working with a visualization. And as you do in a relatively short period of time, in my experience, uh, you begin to feel that you have a kind of personal connection with divine forces, which comes I think because you know we humans are in bodies, we're we are, we're in form. It's much easier for us to to connect to the divine if we if we can if we can give it a specific form, even though we know that it has no form ultimately. So that mm. so that's that's what goddess practice really is. It's a it's a it's a very powerful doorway into self transformation. And one of the things that I got fascinated with, and it's you know, ultimately ended up as my book, Awakening Shakti, is how the the different deities in in the Indian goddess pantheon, they actually have distinct energies. So as you tune into one of these forms, you you're actually tuning into their to their energy. So for instance with the goddess Durga, uh, who's particularly popular among yoga practitioners, you know, you tune into intrinsic strength and warrior spirit. If you're tuned into the goddess Lakshmi, you you're tuned, you know, you're tuning into the energy of abundance and harmony and love. And if you're if you're meditating with Saraswati into wisdom and knowledge and meditating on these goddesses will will actually um, engender in you the the coming forth of these qualities because we all have these qualities. They're just buried for most of us. And by identifying in that way with a, a goddess form, you begin to, to recognize that you yourself carry those divine qualities inside yourself. It's a kind of a shortcut. <clears throat> and as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, um, speaks to the, he speaks to this issue a lot. He says that it's very difficult to meditate on the unmanifest, on the formless. So, as, so, but it's much easier to meditate on the form. So in a certain way, this, you know, the practice of, of um, let's say, iconicizing the divine and then meditating on it is, can be very, very powerful if you understand that what you're meditating on is not the form, but what's behind it. Mm, so fascinating. And really illuminating and and so your gorgeous description of what you just talked about can be a real practice and as you were speaking of it to me I felt how it really can be an initiation right if we claim okay I'm say and in my experience particularly like if I personally am feeling a lacking of a certain energy within myself or I'm in a relationship and things are imbalanced and so when I think about okay what is what am I needing to bring forth and take responsibility on my part 
you know, thinking and reflecting on these goddess energies and then focusing on the one that I feel as you spoke of wanting to engender or elicit within myself, then spending time, whether it's, you know, listening to the goddess's name chanted or printing out a picture on the computer and looking at her form or studying her different attributes or even mythic yogic stories can then help elicit this within myself, these qualities that I can then bring into my relationship or situation that I'm, I'm working with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. So profound. And then it becomes an initiation. It's, it's almost circles back to the first question I asked about how as modern mystics, how can we create ourselves these more quote unquote mini initiations? Right. Because really our moment to moment life can be thought of as that if we're moving towards each moment, like you mentioned beautifully, moving towards each experience with curiosity, moving into the present moment as opposed to checking out, numbing out, fight or flighting it. And and this goddess work is one way to do that. Yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I mean, let's, you know, let's get clear about another thing, which is that most of us really need something to take refuge in and you know something somewhere to turn in moments of precarity so having a a a deity form is a is a tremendous help in those moments i mean i often feel like that you know that the the prevailing practices of christian mysticism and christian worship uh that Jesus performs that function, you know, he is that for, for so many Christians, um, the refuge, right? Mm. And, and I, what I discovered is that each one of these goddesses, you know, like the great sages, the great saints, uh, is a refuge. So when you're in trouble, when you're, when you're worried, when you're upset, you can, you know, and you want to ask for help, you can ask for help of the goddess. And uh, as you practice that, you, you actually start to realize that help comes. So, I, you know, I would say, and I think the purpose of religion for most humans since the beginning of time has, has really in many ways been a, a way to, um, to find refuge, you know, to, to, to find a, let's call it divine parent, you know, who can take care of you when, when, there's, when you don't know what to do for yourself. Mm. Mm, that is so, so important. Thank you for, for bringing this up because it's so true. As we know, if we're living life well, life is hard often. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're choosing to engage and evolve, then especially in this day and age of Kali Yuga, which is a term for the intensity of the, the world that we're feeling right now collectively, you know, we really, as humans, are seeking refuge. And even meditation, like as we commit to that practice, I know a lot of students will say to me, you know, I just can't meditate. I can't. And it's like, just, just keep showing up. And yeah. I love even a little advice from you as we punctuate this for those people, because there are a lot of people 
Um, but when one really just commits to that consistent practice, it starts to, for so many I've seen time and time again, starts to dawn on them and it has been for myself how the meditation practice and those practices we spoke of of mantra and just going in and taking those quiet pockets to do that inside job becomes a sanctuary becomes a place to literally go that's you it's your body it's your abode of your body and in that body you've created this wellspring and a place to rest one's weary self as well yes absolutely absolutely beautiful a beautiful beautiful point and for those people who feel like oh my mental log and I'm, i'm constantly thinking and dealing with my ego judging my meditation or it's not that comforting you know what are what are your words or how long should people be trying to start a meditation practice because that's the thing i hear the most i think and i'm sure you do too people's difficulty quote unquote what they think is not meditating or what they don't like about the experience in their meditation and then they give up and so how to cultivate compassionately and what are some parameters if one wants to restart a meditation practice or start one uh well first of all if you if you want to start a meditation practice i would the the most efficient thing to do i have found is to just make a decision that for the next three weeks because 21 days is a good it's the you know it's sort of the minimum uh amount of time it takes to start a new habit so if you say to yourself for the next 21 days, I'm going to meditate for, I'm going to sit for 10 or 15 minutes a day and I'm going to do a simple practice and I'm just not going to get up until the end of the meditation time, no matter what is going on. And I will keep bringing my mind back to the practice. So what begins to happen as you do that uh, is that um, a groove gets formed in your mind, a samskara gets formed in your mind so that, especially if you're meditating at the same time every day, your, your body will want to meditate. You know, the way, the way we always brush our teeth, I mean, most of us, you know, we, <laughs> we, uh, it, there's, you know, there's like, there's a, or we always eat, um, you know, if we're, in, if we're in a healthy relationship to our body, <clears throat> We'll, we eat breakfast at a certain time, more or less, within a couple of hours. We eat dinner at a certain time, more or less. And the body gets hungry when it's time to eat. In the same way, you can train your body, uh, your psyche, to get hungry for meditation, uh, especially if you, if you make a point of doing it at the same time every day. It's, it's, it's a little more difficult to form the habit if you're meditating at different times during the day, but you can do it. And, I, and the thing is that, first of all, meditation is a skill, and it takes practice. So it is important to realize that you're gonna, you're probably gonna fail at it for a, a while <laughs> before you succeed. Just as you know, you, you know, in my case, I always had a hard time with math. You know, when I was t- when I was studying algebra, I actually had to get a tutor, you know, to to explain to me the, the nuances of it. And then I got it, right? And I, it, meditation is, it's not an intellectual pursuit like, like algebra um, or beyond, but, but it's, 
it's something that you know there there we need to learn the pathways of meditation we need to learn how to stand up to the mind uh, without dissing the mind and we le- and we need to learn how to let the stuff that comes up come up and to become a witness to what's coming up so in other words when you meditate seriously you're going to have days when all you can feel is your frustration about some problem in your life uh you're going to you're going to have times when you're just bored you know you're going to you're going to feel completely resistant to it and again when you're starting the practice and for quite a while afterwards you it's very important to be aware of these obstructions that come up and and make a decision that you're not going to let them toss you off the mat so give yourself a short amount of time to meditate 15 minutes is pretty good uh but also understand that essentially if you can sit for longer you'll drop into meditation you you know you you won't have to be trying anymore because there is a natural movement inward movement that we can trigger when we sit mm-hmm. so what mm-hmm. i always suggest to people is that you start with 15 minutes you add see if you can add 5 minutes a week and bring it up to half an hour or 45 minutes and you'll find that it will naturally unfold you know and you'll get there'll be times when you're you you do nothing but think and there are times when you're totally bored and there are times when you can hardly sit there but you begin to realize that you know there's some days like that and there are other days that are completely peaceful and blissful but that when you come out of meditation and this is really important when you come out of meditation no matter how uh confused you were or how emotionally upset you were just sitting in meditation for a few minutes is going to give you the experience afterwards that actually you're fine you can cope so meditation is a really good way to uh take yourself out of problem consciousness and it's the regular practice uh that that does that so you know one of the ways to get yourself on the mat is to remind yourself of all the good effects that that meditation is going to have on you and to realize that it's something that will really make your life better and two that it's enough just to sit and mm. keep bringing your mind back to the practice uh and that way you develop the you know i call them the the focus muscles you know there's you get a habit you develop a habit of uh of letting your mind run on while you focus on a mantra or the breath so um if you would like we can end this with a a brief meditation that would be perfect and could i just say one thing or two things that course. encapsulate what you said cuz i would love to highlight them from the listeners cuz you just spew just incredible wisdom and lay down so much and i love what you said about just to sit is enough cuz as westerners we think how could that be enough right? right i mean especially if the mind's going and you're a new meditator or if you've been meditating 30 years and your mind's going and you might feel like oh you know but really just showing up is enough and as you also alluded to which i just wanted to highlight any relationship that's worth having 
we know there are ups, there are downs. We don't throw out the relationship with our best friend because we have, you know, a, a, a boring day. Right. <laughs> right. And so any, any relationship worth having is going to have a, a myriad of experiences, you know, that feel quote unquote positive or quote unquote negative. And, and so meditation is, I think of it as a relationship and it's one of the relationships I have with, with myself. Yeah. And I, I, I like to say, too, to people, like, when you start to meditate, to me, it reminds me of when you shower or don't. Like, mm-hmm. if you start meditating consistently, as you mentioned, and I just want to highlight that consistency and that commitment to say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to do this no matter what, then eventually, if, if you skip a day or if you do it a, a lot shorter of a time, the rest of the day, I can always feel it. Like, right. like if you know you took a shower, but hopefully it's not bad enough that other people don't know. But right. on the inside, how you can like feel that quality. I think that that one can feel that often, don't you? Absolutely. And meditation is a great shower for the mind. <laughs> well, let's experience yeah. anything you have to offer. Thank you. So why don't we find a posture where the body can be upright, and you can do this on a chair if you're sitting in a chair. Uh, if you're in the car, you should stop the car <laughs> before you start to <laughs> meditate. Um, or maybe save the meditation part for when you're home. Uh, and the most important thing in a meditation posture is simply that the back be upright so that the energy can move uh, through the center of the body because the energy that that awakens you tends to move vertically. Uh, so just find your posture, let your shoulder blades release onto the back, let your chest lift and open, let your eyelids rest softly, one on the other. And we'll just take a moment to scan the body, just noticing the toes, the, the feet, noticing if there's tension in them, and just bringing your awareness up through the body, through the ankles, the calves, the knees, the thighs. Don't worry if you don't feel like you completely tuned into the body. Uh, just the intention is enough. And bring your awareness now into the lower back and the lower abdomen. And you should be finding as you bring your awareness into the torso, into this part of the body, that there's more of a sense of connection. And feel your chest and lungs and shoulders. Let your awareness come down your upper arms, your forearms, and into your palms and hands. And now bring your awareness into the face, into the chin and the cheeks and be aware of the inside of your mouth and your tongue and bring your awareness to your eyes and feel that the eyes soften and say to yourself in a very loving way not as a command but really as a coaxing a suggestion say to your body soften 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 
Now, you can put your hands over the sternum. Just finding the place between the, the U-shaped notch at the bottom of your sternum and the U-shaped notch in your collarbone. And if you measure about six fingers down from the collarbone, you'll find the heart center, which is pretty much in the middle of the chest. And see if you can begin to breathe into that center, just letting the breath come in and touching the area behind the breastbone. And in a very relaxed way, allow your breath to target the heart, the heart center. Again, this is not the physical heart, it's the spiritual heart, which is in the center of the body behind the breastbone. And now bring your awareness as with the next breath, begin to feel that your attention in this center moves backwards so that you are, you're meditating on what I call the back of the heart center. So it's the area just up against your spinal column. And you can begin to imagine, if this is comfortable for you, that the breath is coming in through the front of the body, right through the sternum itself, as though there were an opening there. So the breath is flowing directly into the heart center, finding its space towards the back. And just let that breath begin to open the heart. And I'm, I'm going to give you an English mantra that is a kind of a affirmation of the truth, which is, I am loved. So you can have that thought as you inhale into the heart. And then as you exhale, have the thought, I am love. So I am loved. On the inhalation, I am love. On the exhalation, feeling the breath flowing into the heart and flowing out from the heart.
And you can take a deep breath in. Exhale and just notice what's going on in your body. This is a very short session of meditation, but this this practice, which is extremely simple, can be extended kind of infinitely. And when you're ready, if you want, you can open your eyes. Mm, so delicious. Thank you. My pleasure. And um, thank you, Kilkenny. This was a lovely conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Well, Sally, I'd love to have um, you please tell our listeners where people can find out more about your, your amazing and deep and incredible work in this world. So I have a website, sallykempton.com, which is probably the best way. I also have a Facebook page called Sally Kempton Awakened Heart, but most information is on my website. And there are articles there. There's audio courses that you can download on very many subjects, including one on Tantra. I teach a lot on uh, audio courses. Obviously, now we all are teaching audio and Zoom courses. Many of my courses are available through my website and I do new ones every couple of months, so I'm beginning a a course in late November on Patanjali Yoga Sutras, which is really a, it's it's very meditation focused. Uh, We've already done two, uh, you know, two classes on the the text itself, and now we're moving into the the deep meditative part of it. So it actually is a, it's a, that course is going to be a very good way to to develop a meditation habit. To find Sally, her website, sallykempton.com, is fabulous. There are so many resources on that. And as you said, you continually are offering things that I'm constantly salivating over and love doing with you when I can. So check out her work there. Sally is also so generously offering my Patreon supporters at the five and 10 month level her two luminous Awaken Heart Meditations, and also the supporters at the $30 and $50 levels, those meditations plus her Finding Center meditation. So check out her books, her two books I mentioned earlier. I'll have them in the show notes. She is an illuminative, profound teacher, and her books have literally changed my meditation game. So thank you so much, Sally, for Really, your lifetime of practices, your profound wisdom, your authenticity and um, teaching that has really impacted generations of practitioners like myself. Well, thank you so much, Kilkenny. And back at you, thank you for your great work. So it's Mm -hmm. so beautiful to be in this universal sangam together. (laughs) Well, it's a, a high honor. Namaste. Namaste. Have a great day, all of you. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. It is so appreciated. Also, check out my website, modernmystic.love, 
where you can find information about my very exciting monthly Mystic membership. My members have unlimited access to a robust video library, which includes short videos that are easily digestible, sharing practical ways to integrate mystical living into your day-to-day life. These compelling videos cover topics such as how to ground, protect, and grow your energy, how to develop your psychic abilities, how to connect to your spirit team, shadow work, inner child work, tarot cards, lots of Western astrology, of course, in addition to syncing up with the rhythms of nature and so much more. I've gotten so much positive feedback that these videos are game changers for folks. Also included in the membership are over a hundred alignment-based yoga classes of all different levels, meditation and breathwork classes. So you can work from the inside out or the outside in and up level yourself as you become the next version of you. Not to mention my mystic members get all sorts of bonus content and discounts from my visionary podcast guests. So check out modernmystic.love and take a peek there as there's a free sampling of some videos waiting for you. Lastly, if you are looking for some conscious conversation and compelling community, check out also our private Modern Mystic podcast Facebook group. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste.